Hello and welcome to Farmerama. This month we begin on the island of Jersey, where the community have come together to build sustainable supply networks, benefiting both smaller scale farmers and local people. We revisit rewilding and how it fits into the farming landscape. Then it's back to a regenerative farm to hear how they are working with nature to build pollinators and many other beneficials into their farming landscape. Finally, we hear from a Malawian reverend about the connections between their faith, farming, and agroecological principles. The Sustainable Cooperative, or SCOOP, in Jersey, aim to create a more sustainable supply of food on the island. They have a plastic-free shop where both those buying food and those supplying it are members. Co-founder India Hamilton wanted to make sure that ecological farmers had a clear route to market and that people had access to more affordable, healthy, local food. It's a cooperative of conscientious consumers, people in Jersey who really care about the environment, um, and they've come together to support the small organic farmer. I, I got back to Jersey and I was reading around the subject. There was loads of different stuff going on um, around pollutants in water, uh, really progressive uh, research and big companies, uh, big sort of supermarkets coming in and taking over local businesses. But I noticed one statistic which didn't quite work out, which was farming had dropped Organic farming had dropped by 80% in five years. And I knew that farming globally, organic farming globally was on the up. And that from a supply and demand level, I knew that something was more complicated and something different was going on. So we went to find out what it was. I was very lucky to come across this lady called Laura Santa Maria, who looks at regenerative system design. And she helped me understand across uh, multi-stakeholders within the community, how you kind of ask questions to align an agenda in a way. And so we, we did a bit of that and, uh, and asked kind of targeted questions around problems. And we realized that almost every level, if it's a local only campaign or how regularly restaurants print menus or the size of a wholesaler, each element were marginalising the smaller farmer. It was a little bit of serendipity because at the same time I met a, a couple called Casper and Susanna Wimbley and they had started an agricultural art project there uh, where they had invited artists from around the world to come in and interpret artistically a the agriculture locally, ba- demanding a sort of grassroots understanding. Um, and so they were sort of gathering understanding from the community. Um, I had come from from this sort of food systems solutions background, kind of chefing background, and I'd met a, f- a few farmers like Justin uh, from Anvil Farm, and we all sort of got together at one point, and we decided to we can't ask the farmers to do anything if there isn't a shop. And if there's a shop and a market, let's get going on this. So we just went for it and crowdfunded this idea of, of sort of aggregating the market to support those farmers. Well, we're all a bit last minute. So the day before getting it going, we were up 
all night. We had not only crowded the money, but also the people to do it. Nothing was bought in terms of uh, the shop's infrastructure. It was all upcycled material um, from pallet boards. But Casper, who designed the shop, has got a very high standard. So we were sanding and, and using bee polish wax and getting it to an incredibly, almost ridiculous high spec. It sort of set a standard of, of quality. About 120 people came and we were pretty entrenched in stress and tears. But going forward from that, we learned really quickly that when you're working with food, you're basically working with things that are dying and you have to be good at it and you have to you have to have a good cycle and you have to work very closely with your suppliers. We'd launched with 350 different products and none of us had really done this before. Um, and so it's been a really steep learning curve. And we have now about just shy of 500 products. We're completely plastic free or one single use free. Um, and it's been a very interesting to watch people really slow down. I mean, our till system makes you really slow down. <laughs> um, we have about six or seven uh, very committed volunteers and uh, some amazing staff to keep it going. It's nice. When you remove all the packaging, people call it bulk buying, but actually it's not. It's precision buying. And it means you've got this, you've all of a sudden got this cost management to organic food that people who are low income can afford because they're all of a sudden buying five peas worth of something for a meal. So they can price their organic food in. So sometimes in our queue we'll have someone who's driven in in a really fancy car with kids from private school and then a few people who are on on low income and they all pay a sliding scale of of membership and everyone equally gets 25% off or you're a non-member and then you just buy the pay the full whack. Casper and Susanna um, had lived in Germany and it was a membership model that they had seen work in terms of monthly payments. We had noticed that a lot of farm shops locally had suffered or disappeared when supermarkets came in and we wanted to create a model where if people wanted that convenience and that choice of supermarkets they could go that that day and it not affect us so we wanted to be prepaid and cover our basic bills and our staffing. We don't co-op the farmers. We want to pay what they ask for and we want them to sell to any market. Um, we want to take their surplus. We want to kind of be as easy for them as possible. Uh, some farmers are really jelling with us. Um, other farmers are kind of too big um, and then support us when we need it. Um, I think in a couple of years time when they're getting more and more confident to, gr to grow and extend the season and actually probably grow less potatoes. Jersey's got a very strong potato land use directive um, which impacts our biodiversity. But what's really fun is we've got a couple of really small farmers who have huge diversity and they'll just come in and drop off a kilo of a yakon or akaroo or something crazy or quinoa or amaranth and they're so excited, but we will sell it. Co-ops are really interesting to run. Um, people put a lot of time into them. I suppose this is a kind of a, a learning curve. And if someone integral makes you turn on it, it's actually how you value 
that effort putting in. It's, there's no financial effort, so it makes it quite fragile. There's no financial accounting for that kind of effort of people. So what's been important to us is we've affiliated with um, different platforms that are looking at how you value different economies. So we joined a platform called Good Market Global, which is based out of Sri Lanka, which looks at the economy and the value of a sustainable um, model. And it, it takes you all through the employment and the security of volunteers and that sort of stuff. Biodiversity is incredibly exciting for a chef. And most people will struggle to access that biodiversity in their daily life. So if you're a small farmer, go and find a chef or someone who understands how to manage that biodiversity and make it really palatable for people. Farming is a one part, it's responsible, they say, for 25% of carbon emission, but it's one of the only acts that everybody can integrate with nature with and through. And they farming can do anything from enhance life to destroy life. And I sit and I think about these beautiful places that find it so difficult to get to market. And if everywhere farm like those places, we'd all be fine. Last month, you heard a wonderful journey through the thistles, butterflies, anthills, as Isabella Tree described some of the most surprising moments in the last 20 years of letting the wilderness return at Nep Estate. As farmers, we're always a little wary of the idea of rewilding because farming is so often pitted as the opposite of rewilding. So we quizzed Isabella about this to get the lowdown on whether she sees herself as a farmer and how projects like NEP fit into the farming landscape. We cannot continue farming intensively as we are. It's unsustainable. There is no future in it. It is a dying system, whether we like it or not. The future is regenerative farming. And so we have to be doing that um, on all our intensive agricultural land. And that in itself is more wildlife friendly. Rewilding can be the webbing between those regenerated farm areas where we're producing our food, where we have really proper dynamic habitat for wildlife. Why should people living in an arable belt be deprived of, of any life at all? You know, we need life, we need wildlife, we need wild spaces. We know the dangers of severing ourselves from nature. We've only been urban for a blip in our evolution anyway, if we disconnect ourselves entirely from nature, we know that has a mental and a physical impact. Uh, the NHS can even put figures on it. So we need access to nature. We need access to, not just to green spaces, because we know those can be deserts. We need access to nature that is heaving, thrumming, buzzing with life. And if we can have that on our agricultural land as well, then we're win-win. Rewilding has shown that we can, just in 20 years, we've proved at NEP that our soils have restored significantly. So we've doubled our carbon. We have tripled the mycorrhizal fungi networks underground. We have tripled our soil biota. That is really astonishing in under 20 years. 
So what one could consider is using um, rewilding in a system alongside agriculture, so to restore your soils. So a bit like the rotational systems of the past where you allowed land to lie fallow and be grazed, go back to pasture in order to allow those soils to recover. What you could do, say in the fens, for example, where we know there's only about 15 harvests left before we've got no topsoil at all, you could do a rewilding project on, say, three, four, five thousand acres for just a generation, so for 25, 35 years. Um, allow your species to come back, allow, allow your soils to restore, allow your water to purify, you're doing all your other ecosystem services. And then at the end of that time, you send in those amazing machines that the Forestry Commission have, turn that whole load of thorny scrub back into a workable tilth, very easy to do with these machines, um, and return that area into regenerative farming. Meanwhile, around you, areas have, are starting to come up to rewild. So you've got your thorny scrub coming up again. And that is where your turtle doves, your nightingales, your purple emperors go to. That's the next door habitat that they can move to. So you can do this on a cyclical basis, but just on a, a much longer time frame and a much larger area. It would be a really interesting way, I think, of seeing rewilding and regenerative farming um, working in tandem. There's this wonderful feeling at the moment, and it's just happened in the last year or so, where everyone who owns even a tiny patch of land wants to do their bit. And absolutely, there's things to do. Um, I think the first key is connectivity. It goes down into very even small scale. I've got a friend who has rewilded his back garden in Bristol. Um, but what he's done is he's talked to his neighbours. So he, the neighbours have now all put in hedgehog tunnels in their fences and their, and their hedgerows so that all the gardens are now connected by the tunnel. So they've now become a wildlife corridor. One person has a pond, um, another person has quite happily got nettles in the bottom of their garden. So between them in this street, they have pretty much every habitat that you'd want, um, but it is now connected. And if you can connect a street with, say, a railway line, railway embankments, or, or perhaps just a park at one end, you're suddenly you're connecting nature together in a really interesting and dynamic way. Um, there's obvious things you can do in your garden, like not using chemicals at all, going chemical-free. Instantly you have interest for, for insects and, and for birds. But I think from our point of view, we're, when we're talking about getting natural processes back into a landscape, it still does really depend on scale. That's when you get the, the most excitement, the most unexpected um, responses, and that's when you start getting your turtle doves or your or your uh, nightingales, your really rare species then have a chance if they're in these big landscapes with, with dynamic natural habitat. So what we're seeing now more and more uh, is farmers with, say, 100, 200 acres clubbing together with people around them, creating farm clusters. And this is a wonderful new phenomenon. I think DEFRA has on their desk at the moment eight farm clusters um, to do kind of rewilding projects like this. Rewilding Britain has just announced an amazing project from the top of Pumliman Mountain to the benthic layer of Cardigan Bay. So that will be a huge rewilding project using you know, natural processes that will link all sorts of um, stakeholders together. So you will have forestry uh, commission land, you've got uh, Welsh national government land, you've got royal land, you've got smallholders, you've got gardeners. It'll be everybody in that catchment will be involved in some way so it really is about connecting and joining the dots I think
the wonderful thing about rewilding is is it never ends and so um because we're not kind of we have no goals no no set targets we just wait and see what happens and every week something extraordinary turns up we had a, a beetle new uh, sorry a fly species new to britain last week which was all the all the excitement but we um we've also just applied for our beaver license and we would love to have beavers at net that would just be astonishing they they create amazing habitat if we could get money for a land bridge over the A24, we could join with some other landowners and perhaps one day reach the sea. We'd love to rewild the whole of the River Ada catchment and have our, our cattle browsing on sallow on net one week and then eating seaweed on shore and beach the next. I think I would like to share a feeling of hope, really, because I think... For us in the last year, we have certainly felt that the tide is turning and that people are now open to new ideas, hungry for new ideas. For me, I feel like regenerative farming and rewilding is inevitable. It's going to happen because it has to happen. The problem is we have these dinosaur kind of uh, corporate structures that are the food and farming industry who want to hold things back. They have vested interests in maintaining the status quo. And it's how do we dismantle that as fast as possible so that we can be free to do this really responsible, regenerative um, ecology and farming that will save us and the planet. Following on from Isabella's vision of a patchwork of regenerative farms, we wanted to return to Gothenley Farm in Somerset to hear how Fred Price is building wildlife into the arteries and veins of his farm. We were particularly intrigued by his plans to have every part of the farm no more than 50 metres away from beneficial habitants. So behind me is um, an eight-acre field of our heritage, autumn heritage varieties. Again, heritage not as some sort of gimmick, but I see them as low-input cereals. Um, So we spend a lot of time... Uh, sourcing different products from gene banks, multiplying them up over three or four years before we grow them out on big acreage and get other farmers to grow them for us as well. Um, So that's behind me, different stages of development, different size blocks. Um, As we get to the end of the field, we've got, um, we just had about three quarters of an acre left over. So um, I went back to the grain store and chucked all the seeds that I had left over from cover crops and herbal lays and cereals and uh, pulses, put put them in the drill and just drilled it. And actually now we're stood here in, when is it, um, end of May. It looks absolutely fantastic. Um, absolutely humming when you walk through. Um, it's a really visceral experience actually, isn't it? Um, very addictive way of farming when you start. <laughs> um, and then there's sort of basically a, a, we call it a brook, that runs right through the middle of the farm, I guess like a kind of artery. And the way I see the farm moving forward would be that being kind of like, almost like imagine a delta, what a delta looks like. And then from this brook, which is the kind of permanent refuge area for all the beneficials, um, arteries and veins run from this um, throughout into the fields each side, um, either in the form of um, like buffer strips against the brook, but then dividing some fields up using hedgerows um, and then some of the larger fields kind of agroforestry so you've got arteries running from the from the main from the main stream so I guess like a leaf or a delta that kind of image the whole theory being that to build 
to build resilience into your system, you have to have some permanent areas of high biological diversity, I guess, nature. And on our farm at the moment, those pockets aren't linked and they're not close enough together. So I see a farm in the future where you're never more than 50 meters away from one of those pockets. So that if you have a block of arable crop, all the beneficials that you've built up in these permanent areas have access to that area which you're kind of drawing down on the fertility or the good work that you're doing, but without drawing down on the biodiversity. Um, so that's kind of how I see the farm and I see the the brook where we stood now is a real like kind of source for all of those tributaries to go out into the into the more kind of commercial arable cropping. That's how I would see it. Okay, can you just tell me a little bit about the, the 50 meters theory um, and, for example, maybe talk about it in the context of that beet field that we can, bean field that we can see? Yeah, so so we um, most of the things I've come across, in fact, all of the things, none of them are my ideas, but I've applied them when I've seen firsthand something going wrong. So my whole understanding of soil fertility changed when I had a whole half the farm go flat the cereals weren't flat because the nutrient resource efficiency of the cereals was greater than I anticipated year on year and so it made me really think about what was going on under the soil similarly I've had an experience this year where I've got 18 acres of spring beans that um, we use as part of the pig diet um, and as 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 along with our no fungicide no nitrogen policy we also have a no insecticide policy so about three weeks after the beans emerged, they had, were experiencing notching on the leaves. So that's basically um, a pea and, pea and bean weevil um, pest. Now, I could have just gone out with a sprayer and sprayed it and sorted the problem, but I've lost probably a third of the field. But when you look at the field, it's just remarkable. It's actually quite a long, thin field. It's mostly headland. But genuinely, a strip through the middle of the field, the, i.e. the furthest point from any of the hedgerows and permanent refuge areas, is the bit that's been hammered and affected. I mean, typically your headlands are your worst parts of your field with compaction and where you're turning and that kind of thing. Um, and so it's an absolute visual example of where we're trying to get to. If we can make every part of the farm easily accessible, because I think something I've heard and read is um, these beneficials can migrate 50 meters from wherever they are based. And so that field is a perfect example, you know, I'm not saying the beans on the outside haven't been affected, but in terms of the impact on yield, instead of 50-60%, it's probably 10 or 15%. I think that's the, the whole model that we're moving to, much more accepting lower yields, but at no cost. And those yields are always the same amount lower, so 15 or 10% lower, rather than the kind of boom or bust swings that we see at the moment. So I guess I just have to accept that field, how it looks at the moment, and take a 10-year view and say, you know, back myself that we won't be getting that in 10 years' time. But it's tough at the moment, you know, because we're neither organic nor conventional. We're somewhere in between. We've cre created red lines for ourselves because I want to find out and push the system as far as it can go. And you do suffer, you know, because you can't just resort to the chemical can because it sets you back to where you started. Finally, we have another report from Johnny Hansen at Jubilee Farm in conversation with the Reverend Goodwin's mayor about his work with a farming community in Malawi and how their faith connects with their farming practices. 
We're back at Jubilee Farm this month, and although we're a small farm based in Northern Ireland, we like to think locally. We like to use our farm and what we're doing here to engage with people who are doing similar projects around the world. I'm joined by the Reverend Godwins Mayeri, and we've just finished running an event here near Jubilee Farm called the Reverend Farmer because Godwins is not just a Presbyterian minister, but he is also a trainer in conservation agriculture. Godwins, would you be able to tell us a little bit about your project in Northern Malawi and how it combines faith and farming? We are doing a project in the northern part of Malawi in a community called Chirida, where this was the community that has been devastated with hunger for several years. We looked at that as a problem and upon searching the, trying to find the answers, we discovered that the best method that could fit the community was what we call foundations for farming, which is based on four cornerstones that we use for teaching. The first one is we teach people to be on time all the time because we, we believe that when people they know when to do it, uh, that means they, they will have good harvest. The second cornerstone is they have to do something on high standard. They have to just, just to do things because they want just to try it, but they have to do it specifically on a high standard. Uh, that's, that's the recommendation. This third one, the third point is there should be no wastage. Everything that they harvest, the residues must remain in the garden, decompose and turn into manure. The last part of it is they have to do the work with joy. Because we had experienced that many people in Malawi, they were thinking to do farm work was a punishment. So they had no joy, but we had to tell them that farming is the way that we are supposed to do. And they have to have joy doing it. Christians, uh, we, Christians believe that the world was created by God. And man was put in the world to in the world to take care of the the world. Therefore, there should be a great relationship between Christians and the creation. So, what we teach our farmers is at the end of their harvest, they know that though they planted maize, they needed rain, and that rain is provided by God. They 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 had to work on the garden. They needed energy, and that we believe that it came from God. So, what at the end of the harvest? What we do is all the people, they come together in a community. We have some gospel artists uh, around our community, which we have from uh, another part, who is an ambassador at the moment, Maria Nunwe, with the choir, Redemption Choir, and people come together to celebrate. The main reason they celebrate is that God gave us a good weather, God gave us good rains, and he gave us good energy, and it's time to celebrate, and it's time for joy. So in our local language, we call it, then after harvesting, we have joy. Thanks for listening to Farmerama this month and every month. We're excited to be starting our fifth year of Farmerama with your support. If you want to help, then please do take a second to review us and to share the show with any friends and family you think would be interested. Farmerama is made by Joe Barrett, Katie Revel, and myself, Abby Rose. This month, editing support was by Susie McCarthy, Louis Hudson, and Zach Epe. Community support for the show comes from Hannah Soderland, Annie Landless, Eliza Jenkins, and Olivia Oldham. And our theme music is by Owen Barrett. Toodaloo!